1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 10, and then verses 20 to 26. And it will be on the slides. It's also in your bulletins. So you can follow along with us. Let me go ahead and read this for us. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ of firstfruits, then it is coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're looking at a passage uh, taken from the Apostle Paul's letter to the Corinthians uh, so we can talk a little bit about the resurrection of Jesus Christ on Easter Sunday. Um, and I'll make two big points about the resurrection, unpack each of them as we go. And here are the two big points. One, um, the resurrection is believable um, because it's historical. Okay. And two, the resurrection is believable because it's beautiful. And the, the historical part, that aligns with us rationally. The emotional part, the, I mean the beautiful part, I should say, aligns with us emotionally. Or, or another word for that, maybe existentially. Okay. So let me unpack these one at a time. Number one, the resurrection is historical. And it aligns with us rationally. Okay. Now if you look at verse 3... Paul says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and in verse 4, Christ was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Right? That's really the good news, right? Called the gospel that Christians always talk about. Right? Christ died for our sins, he rose again to give us eternal life. Okay? And you receive this by putting your faith in him. Now, from this point on, what Paul does is not to say, okay, there, right? It happened according to the scriptures. Just take it and don't question it. Okay, that's what he doesn't do, right? From this point on, what he does is he makes a rational case for it. Right? He presents a case. Uh, he says in verse 5, he, being Jesus, appeared to Cephas, which is Peter, the disciple, then to the twelve. And verse 6, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now this is fascinating because virtually every historian who studies the, the New Testament period agrees that this letter from Paul to the Corinthians was written just 15 to 20 years 
um, after the death of Jesus. And that's including the most skeptical New Testament historians. Uh, and when I, say, when I say historians, I mean scholars, not bloggers, okay? The people who actually write peer-reviewed articles. Okay? That's where the debate is, about 15 to 20 years. Now, why does that, why does that matter? Why does the dating matter? Um, the reason why this matters is because it lets you know that the people Paul mentions here are people who would still have been alive when this letter was circulating. Okay. Meaning, you can go and check with these people whether Paul's account is true. Uh, because these people weren't exactly um, dead people that you can't fact check with, they're alive. Okay. Go check in on them. And not only that, not only check in on what they might say, check in on their lives. Why? Because these people weren't exactly the most faithful followers during Jesus' time. Right? Peter was the guy that denied Jesus three times and went into hiding to save his own neck right? during Jesus' crucifixion. But now, somehow, he's, he's risking his life testifying in public about Jesus' resurrection. Go verify that. Right? Check in on Peter. See if he's that transformed, as I say he is. And go check in on James, the brother of Jesus, who, by the way thought Jesus was a madman, he was crazy, disowned him as a brother, basically cast him out of the family. And yet now James worships, worships Jesus, preaches the gospel of Jesus. Go to James, verify his transformation, okay? So you would know that their testimonies are true and that Things did indeed happen according to the scriptures. Jesus is risen. That's, that's what Paul is trying to do here. That's why he's mentioning these names. Richard Bauckham, he's a New Testament uh, scholar at Cambridge, and he wrote this massive historical uh, survey during this time, for this period of time. And what he showed in his study is, in ancient literature, what you find just universally across the board in fictional writings, legendary writings, are two things. One, you will find a very late dating, okay? uh, written centuries after the actual event, okay? and, and, and people that have been long dead. Okay? That's one. Two, you will find an absence, absence of specific details meant for corroborating and fact-checking. Okay? That's what you don't see in the um, genre of fiction and allegorical writings. But in the Gospels, of the apostles and Apostle Paul's letters, you find both early dating, right, and specific mentioning of the witnesses of the events meant for corroboration, right? So you would go do some fact-checking yourselves, okay? It's just not written like a fabricated tale when you look at when it's written and how it's written. And you don't, see, you don't fabricate or lie about something and then give 500 plus people that you can fact-check with. That's just not how you make things up. And then there's the conversion of Paul himself. Paul was the greatest persecutor known to the early church. And overnight becomes the greatest missionary of the early church. And this still baffles um, historians. He's still kind of an enigma. Like, what happened to Paul? Right? Uh, some people have tried to posit maybe he's just gone crazy. He's insane, 
But when you read his writings, it doesn't sound like an insane person at all. I mean, philosophers, theologians are still unpacking Paul's writings to this day. What happened to Paul? Something happened to Paul. And what Paul is saying is, yeah, I'm telling you what happened to me. I saw the risen Christ. So uh, here, Gerd Ludemann, he's a New Testament scholar who's actually an atheist. He actually doesn't believe. He went as far as to say this. It may be taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus' death in which Jesus appeared to them as a risen Christ. Uh, he's not saying Jesus actually rose from the dead. He's saying they had actual experiences that, to them, seems like Jesus appeared from the, from the dead. Okay? He's like, historically speaking, that's the only probable explanation for Paul's conversion, Peter's devotion to Christ, and James's conversion as well. So as a skeptic, even as a skeptic, the best explanation for the writings and the transformed lives of these, these disciples and apostles is that they saw the appearances of Christ. And this is something that modern historians are kind of stuck with, right? They, they either have to acknowledge, okay, resurrection happened, or else propose um, alternative uh, explanations that account for the historical data, right? Here's, here's the historical data, and you've got to account for that somehow. And, and they have tried. Some have proposed a hallucination theory, um, saying that they had a massive group hallucination. And the problem with that is modern psychology has disproven that. Right? You don't have group hallucinations. Uh, some others have proposed a swoon theory, uh, which says Jesus didn't really die. Um, he just kind of uh, was buried for three days, broke out of his burial cloth, removed the giant stone blocking the tomb, went home to his disciples, appearing somehow fully recovered. And the problem with that is, uh, that's also very non-historical, because one of the things that Roman made sure of during the crucifixion was the death of the crucified. Right? And to, to drop the ball on a, a high-profile figure like Jesus, that's just very highly unlikely. Uh, not only that, I mean, that just defies medical science. It's almost like you're trying to, you're, you're positing one miracle to substitute for another miracle. And then there are the 500 brothers that Paul says Jesus also appeared to him. What you have there is a very, um, very probable cause for the explosion of Christianity in the first few decades. Uh, during this time, there were other um, sorts of messianic movements. Okay? When people say, you know, there were other people kind of claiming the things that Jesus claimed. That's true. That's true. But here's what happened to those movements. The leader would get caught. The leader would get then crucified or executed. And the movement would die. Immediately. Okay. But in Christianity, you have a leader who gets caught, gets crucified, and then the movement explodes. Okay. Even as persecutions continued, how? Why? What was the one thing driving this explosive movement? Right? They had no political gain from this, no cultural gain from this. Why? Uh, one thing that was driving the early Christian movement was this, the apostles' eyewitness accounts of the resurrection. That was it. That was it. That's all they had to go on. So there's a lot of historical data here that points us to a certain direction that we have to account for, and that the resurrection of Christ, the physical resurrection of Christ, his bodily appearances seem to be accounting for. 
final historical point, and, and, and you have to understand this. This is a very important contextual historical point. Paul and the early Christians weren't just really impressed with Jesus' resurrection. They worshipped him for it. You have to grasp that. They worshipped him for it. And the reason why that's important is because worshipping someone who lived and died and was buried, okay, essentially a human being, was and still is an act of idolatry according to Jewish law, according to their customs, even to this day. To worship a man as a god, that's blasphemy. In fact, that's what God Jesus killed. He was a man claiming to be God. It's something that the Jews stood adamantly against. In, in, in a way, the Jews have more reasons to reject the resurrection than we modern people have today on scientific grounds because even though, yeah, we live by science, operate by science, but we don't ground our identity in science. Right? We, we draw our identity from like, relationships, vocations, right? um, hobbies, areas of interest. Right? We identify with those things. The Jews have one thing they identify with, their religion. And to abandon that suddenly and start worshiping a man, and all that points us to is something must have happened to them. Something drastic must have happened to them for that paradigm shift to happen. Jews don't worship a man. But just weeks after Jesus' crucifixion, there's a movement of Jewish people worshiping a man, the man Jesus Christ. And what can explain that paradigm shift? Not in just a few, but in hundreds and soon thousands of people's lives. And the most probable explanation is that they witnessed the resurrected Jesus. It happened. It happened. Proving, them, proving to them, Jesus is not merely a man, but also God. Now, if none of this leads you to be even open to believing in the resurrection, uh, that's okay. I'm glad you're here. Right? Uh, but the one thing I will submit to you, though, is this. At the least, that what I hope you can see is that believing in the resurrection is not the most irrational thing. It's at least not an ahistorical thing. It's actually what the historical data forces us to look at. And as, as far as history is a field of science, if you take it as a scientific field, it's the most scientific thing to believe. It's following the historical clues where they lead. He died a real historical death, and he rose a real historical resurrection. Okay, now if you want to discuss that further, just hash things out and whatever. I would love to meet with you over coffee and do that, so just let me know. All right, here's the second point. Moving on from the historical data and the historical viewpoint, the fact that it is historical, that's why it's believable. It aligns with us rationally, but beyond that, here's the second point. The resurrection is not just believable because it's historical, it's also believable because it's beautiful. But to make this point, uh, we've got to get a little ugly at first. Okay? To make the point about beauty, we have to talk about what's ugly. It's, it's kind of like, you know, how the cure is beautiful in light of the disease kind of thing. Okay? So bear with me for a little bit, all right? Uh, Leo Tolstoy, he, he wrote in this short little word called uh, a confession, he wrote this. The simplest of questions, lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live is this. What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? 
Why should I live? Why wish for anything or do anything? Is there any meaning in this life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? Is there any meaning in this life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? What Tolstoy is doing here is he's helping us connect two very important dots here, and that is death and the death of meaning. He's connecting those two dots. Death equals the death of meaning. And it's something other thinkers like Nietzsche and, and Sartre pointed out. Death ultimately brings the death of meaning, all meaning. So death is not just kind of this future problem you should be afraid of, you know, kind of this sort of taking time bomb that you're afraid of. It's a very present problem. Why live now if death comes later? It's like, a, it's like every paper airplane I fold for my kids. Why fold one <laughs> if we get crumbled up later? Like, why? Why if, it, if we just end up destroyed and flightless? That's mostly what the existentialists have wrestled with. What is it that gives life's meaning in the face of death? That's the ugly question that I'm raising here. Okay. If everything will face destruction in the end, why is anything worth building? Is anything worth loving? Is anything worth feeling if death invalidates it all? If in the end we forget it all? If in the end, nothing counts, right? It's like, whose line is it anyways? Well, you play a bunch of games, but in the end, the points don't matter. <laughs> so why live anyway? So Albert Camus, another existential thinker, he put it like this, the absurd man wants to live without li relinquishing any of his certainty, without a future, without hope. Okay. The absurd man wants to live without a future, without hope. Because in the absence of the afterlife, if, if you purely believe in this naturalistic, materialistic universe, as most secular thinkers do, it is absurd to embrace life, love, justice, equality as truly beautiful things. Because in the end, they'll be forgotten. In the end, they'll be non-existent. You guys heard of Dylan Thomas? Uh, Do not go gently into that good night. And Christopher Nolan did a good job kind of popularizing it again in Interstellar, great film. Um, he cries, right, in that poem, Do not go gently into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And that context is Thomas urging his father to struggle against death. Don't go gently into that good night. Rage against the dying of the light. Right? Why? Why? Because he loves his father. His relationship with his father is under threat, and that threat is death, the ugliness of death. It's threatening to take away what matters to him most, his love relationship with his father. But Camus says, 
It's absurd to cry about that. Cry about something that will end eventually anyway. Right? But the truth of our feelings, and this is why you love the poets, right? The truth of our feelings, right? our deepest emotions, just simply does not accept death as a natural part of our experience. The deepest reality is, the deepest emotional reality is we cry and we rage against death. So the problem, I think, with the existentialist or secular approach is it just doesn't validate our true emotions about death. It doesn't. It tells us they're absurd. When we know deep down that our desire for life, our desire for love, our desire for justice, fairness, these aren't absurd, these are true. We live as if these are true. And we don't want to deny them. And that means you need a worldview that can validate those emotions, ground these emotions to, to let you know they're true and they're truly beautiful. And this is where you find, I think, the Christian narrative to be utterly unique. Not only is death not a natural part of our existence, it is the very thing that our God came down to destroy. Okay. Take a look at verse 26 in our passage today. The very last verse in our passage today says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And what is that doing? That's validating us. That's validating our deepest emotional reality, our truest emotions. Death is identified here as an enemy. Right? The Bible's picking a fight with death. It's not presenting death as something to be embraced, but as something to be destroyed. What a claim. And that's what the gospel presents us. The Son of God became a man, and he raged against death on the cross, and even in the grave. He's our hero who has raged against the dying of the light and won, and won. He entered the ring with death, and he put death to death. Why? For what? So we would be reunited with our Father, our Heavenly Father. So here's what this means. In Jesus Christ, and only in Him, is our rage against death not absurd, but rational and totally validated. Desiring life is not absurd, it's beautiful. Desiring a love that never ends is not absurd, it's beautiful. Desiring Perfect justice, if not in this life, then in the next, is not absurd. It's beautiful. It's worth pursuing. There is a hope and a future for us. Right? It's a future with God. You see, God first entered the grave, first so that he would be with us, sympathize with us, but he also came out of the grave, and that's so that we would be with him, reunited with him. That's the beauty of the resurrection. It's the undoing of our greatest fear. It tells us we're not stuck with embracing death in sort of this accidental universe headed for nothing. 
It tells us that we are loved and we will be loved from now till forever. That's the implication of the resurrection and that makes the resurrection beautiful. And the implications of that are already implied, right? The implications of that is tremendous. It makes everything we do now important as long as it aligns with Jesus. His resurrection, in a way, put an eternal stamp of approval on everything he did on his earthly life. Gives everything he did on his earthly, during his earthly life eternal significance. We can meaningfully, that means, we, we, we can meaningfully care for people. Why? Jesus cared for people. We can care about fairness and justice and equality. Why? Jesus cared about those things. We can care about the environment. Why? Jesus cared about the environment. If Jesus rose again from the dead historically, then everything he stood for matters eternally. That's the beauty of the resurrection. It restores not only your relationship to God, it in a sense restores your relationship to yourself. Tells you why your life is worth living in the here and now. It restores your relationship to yourself, why life is beautiful, why the people around you are beautiful, why justice is a beautiful pursuit. It's all found in the resurrection, that it doesn't end at death. Death doesn't have a final say, but like we heard in the, in the call to worship, death has lost its sting. Oh death, where is your victory? We laugh at death in his face. That's what gives our today. That's what gives all of our relationship, that's what gives our work eternal significance. That's why the resurrection is beautiful and aligns with us emotionally. Now, how do you come to know that you believe this? How do you receive this? The same way the early Christians did, by receiving the testimony of the apostles, the apostles' teachings. Acknowledging that Jesus' resurrection is historical and recognizing that God's love for you is more beautiful than anything else. In fact, it's the most, it's the only, perhaps, the truly beautiful thing because it, it gives beauty to everything else. It gives beauty to everything else. Kind of reminds me of what C.S. Lewis said in, in uh, Mere Christianity. He said, um, I believe in God, not in a way, kind of like the way I know that the sun is risen, not because I see it, but by it I see everything else. Perhaps we can understand the beauty of God's nature and His resurrection because we see the beauty in everything else around us. We see the beauty, can't deny it. And that's when we know, when we acknowledge these two things, the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ, the emotional validity of His resurrection, that's when you sort of realize, before we even reached out to God and sought Him out, He's the one who actually reached out to us and loved us in the person of Jesus Christ. He became historical. We didn't ask for that. And He resurrected by His power without our help. It's all found in the person of Jesus Christ. He's the answer. Look to Him. Seek Him out. Investigate Him. Read of Him in His own words. And get a good glimpse of him through the scriptures, through the eyewitness accounts, and not through what you see on TV, and not even through necessarily what other Christians do or not do. Right? 
Look to Jesus. Look at him. Listen to his words. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you that in Jesus Christ you have given us everything we need to seek out who you are. And thank you that in him we find something that is cemented in history, something that is rational to hold to. Not only that, that is beautiful and emotionally valid. It gives meaning to everything that we hold to, hold dear to in this life. And we will, in moments from now, just celebrate each other, this fellowship, this community, by eating together, playing together. And we know that that's really, truly a reflection of your beauty, of your community, of your love that's shared amongst us. So God, we thank you. And I pray that you help us continue to dive deeper into this, investigate this, read into this, so that we would discover this most amazing truth there is. Because if this is true, if you have indeed risen from the dead, that's, that's the only thing that matters. That's the greatest thing that matters. Help us to look into it. Help us to pursue it. We pray in your son's name. Amen.